Hey, good morning, everybody. It is great to see you this morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I like doing stuff like that. Thanks for joining us online and in other rooms. And it's great to have you in the house today. You know, Easter 2022. Now, now this looks a lot different than Easter 2020 from my perspective. For Easter 2020, um, I was in here alone with that camera back there. It's hard to believe. Easter 2021, we were 200 some of service with our rows all spread out. And Easter 2022, you don't look that spread out. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. And thank you for making it a point to be at first today. If you're a family member, if you're joining us online for the first time, it's so good to have you celebrating with us this Easter 2022. But he got me thinking, especially after the past two years, like what will the next Easter's be like? And I was thinking, what will Easter 2032 be like? I heard some, oh. <laughs> Why is that that reaction right now, isn't it? You kind of just sense that in the air, don't you? I think it's the, all the uncertainty we've gone through, the difficulties, the loss of things, boy, the loss of people, the hurt, the division. It's even being called right now a culture of contempt. There's resentment, there's bitterness, there's hurt, there's abuse. There's a lot of things that have gone on over the last two years that when I say, what will Easter 2032 be like that could tempt you to go, I don't know. And some of you are a little more advanced in years. You go, I don't care because I don't plan on being here. <laughs> you know, my wife and I are thinking, what kind of vehicle will we want to be driving in 2032? You ever think about this? Because we like to take a little time to think through what we're going to get because we both have um, some pretty good ideas of what we want. We're thinking we want something safe. We want something that's a reflection of the times we live in. We want to be forward thinking and buy something, you know, that, that'll be good. And some of you are thinking, yeah, you probably want to be like more efficient, maybe. But, but I was thinking the best vehicle maybe that could, and, and we're still working on color, you know, like, because she's more of a black rims, you know, I, 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 you know we're, we're not sure on vehicle side, but we've got the vehicle we think would be best for us in 2032. We were thinking about this. What do you think of this? Do you like this? <laughs> what? Now, now, if you see that vehicle, which when I looked up, because I had a friend of mine go, yo, Chris, did you see these new apocalypse vehicles? I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh yeah, they're six by sixes. They've got, they've got three axles on them. They're awesome. One's called the Doomsday. The other's like the, you know, the, the Sinister Six. I'm like, what? So I look it up and up comes this picture and it says car and driver's best vehicles for the apocalypse. Now, if you all get one of these, we're gonna have trouble with the parking lot, then we already have enough problems. But if you're looking at that vehicle going, you know what? That's not a bad idea. That is wisdom, Chris. You might be who I'm talking about today. Because there might be something that's tempting you like a lot of people to go, I got to protect what's mine. I got to be thinking about myself. I got to make sure I'm repaired. I, gotta, I, I hear these things going on and I'm worried because what, what's happening? We're, we're thinking about Tomorrow. And sometimes when we think about tomorrow, it's not always a good thing. 
Because for some of us, tomorrow might be a very difficult challenge on the horizon. Some of you might already be thinking what you have to do tomorrow. And you go, Chris, why did you bring it up? I mean, is Annie right? Will the sun come out tomorrow? Can I bet my bottom dollar (laughs) that tomorrow there'll be sun? Just thinking about tomorrow. Is it going to be okay? You know... For the believer, they hear that as things grow closer to the end, it's only going to get worse. And there's an aspect where they can feel like even that concerns them when Jesus has already told them how to handle it. And and thinking about tomorrow can lead sometimes, I mean, nobody in this room does it, it can lead to worrying about tomorrow. What is worrying? Worrying isn't planning. Worrying isn't strategizing. Worrying is fretting the what ifs of your future. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if this happens? Worry begins at a pretty young age. You're sitting in school and the teacher says, you're all going to be doing public speaking on Friday. And you learn what it's like for the first time to live with the idea that you need to do something in front of people on Friday. It comes to your mind. And you start thinking about what? Tomorrow. It can wreck a day. Fretting about tomorrow can wreck a day. It's focusing on the what ifs. But what about fabricating your outcomes? You come up with all these things of, I'm going to do this. I don't know if I want, I don't know if I want to say that. Well, you have this one. I, 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 I heard this happen at work, and that guy's been working here for like 20 years. And if that happens to him, then what's going to happen to my job? I could be thinking about what I'm going to do. And, and, and you know, I noticed they don't have anything right now, so maybe we should go like this. I don't even know if I want to live in this state. Maybe I want to move. And we start thinking about tomorrow because we're fabricating the outcomes. Worrying about tomorrow can lead to fearing the unknown. And the unknown comes and hits you out of nowhere. And many of us have learned over the past two years how little control we actually have of our lives. And it has led to what society is now calling an epidemic of anxiety. Worrying about tomorrow. You know, they say worry is a lot like a rocking chair. And I just happen to have one on stage. They say worry is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. It gives you something to do. And it usually hits you around 10 p.m. Oh my word, I never sent that email. I'm not prepared for this. Or it hits you when you find out that you might lose something that you wanted. Worry. Or you made the dreaded mistake of not feeling that well and you checked out doctor's links. Right around 11 o'clock at night, you were up all night. That's you, it's me, I'm done. Worry gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. What would Jesus say about tomorrow? Does he have anything? I mean, the one who says he holds tomorrow, what would he say? What's interesting, scripture says this, do not worry about tomorrow. 
Lord, I'm struggling with worry, okay? Don't do that. What? Don't worry about tomorrow. Man, wow, wow. It really seems like worry has a lot to do with obedience. More than, I don't feel like I can. Do not worry about tomorrow. Don't, 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 don't fret your what ifs. Don't do that. See, you know, if you're a little bit newer to church, you might have always heard, maybe from an outside source or something, that the Bible is out there to just wreck everybody's life. You know, it's just like this ancient document, just like this religious crutch that people use, and all it does is just wreck the fun, you know? It just says, what you can't do, what you can't. When the Bible teaches through Jesus' words that you shouldn't do something, it always means don't hurt yourself. See, because the word of God loves and love sometimes speaks truth even when you don't want to hear it. And that truth is saying, stay away from these things because it'll hurt you. Did you know that worry actually is incredibly unhealthy to your body? It says your body keeps score when you're going through worry and you're damaging things. Do not worry about tomorrow. Why? Well, Jesus says, no, it's because like, tomorrow is going to worry about itself. What? Tomorrow's got to, it's going to worry about itself. Tomorrow is going to sit in that rocking chair itself. So do not fabricate your outcomes. Well, if this happens, well, if this happens, we're going to do this. And then we're going to move there. Then we're going to do this. Don't fabricate outcomes you don't know about. Because you're going to tend to go, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'm going to do. If that happens to me, what will I do? And we don't know. In fact, Jesus throughout scripture is telling his disciples, don't worry what you'll say. I'll give you the words in the moment. Isn't it interesting when we worry about the future, Jesus is never there with us. He kind of just stays in our current year and we go into the future without him when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Tomorrow, worry about itself. In fact, he says this, today has, oh, look at that word, enough trouble of its own. Don't fear the unknowns. You got enough problems right in front of you today. Do not worry about tomorrow. It's unhealthy. Tomorrow, worry about itself. It's unfocused. You'll miss opportunities today. And you'll be unproductive because of your worry. What does Jesus know, though? I mean, he's God. I mean, I get scared. I get nervous. I get things going on. Like, and I, I want to, I like, bunker in. I, I'm, I'm kind of concerned about the future, God. What does he know about tomorrow? And that's what I want to do today. I want to take time walking through the final week of Jesus's life here on earth. You know that scripture gives us indications of what he did on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday where we're here today. And it's very clear Jesus knew what was coming tomorrow. In fact, he told his disciples at many points I am going to be handed over. I am going to be crucified and I will rise again from the grave. He told them. And yet he lived this life knowing what was coming tomorrow. And trust me, folks, it is like the worst week a person could human possibly live. Yet he did it without worry. Oh, he planned. Oh, he prepared. Oh, he thought about it. He even cried about it. But do not worry about it because God holds the future.
Folks, today, join me as we walk through that final week and we investigate how Jesus handles tomorrow. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, I pray that you would just enlighten us anew on this amazing week of your life. What an intentional week. What a strategic week. What an important week. And although we might not be able to remember all those details today, as we bring them up, I pray that just enlightens us a little bit on our own week and how we spend our days and how worry can destroy what you've called us to do. Lord, we don't want to live life in a rocking chair. We want to live a life that is moving forward in faith, regardless of what the future holds. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. It's Sunday. Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to go into town and get a donkey, untie it. If the owners say, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord has need of it. They'll give it to you. And they do. He rides in to Jerusalem on Passover Sunday on a donkey. You say, that's kind of odd. And it was odd unless you've read the Zechariah prophecy that was written hundreds of years before this event that said Messiah will come riding on a donkey. If you know the book of Daniel, you know there are prophecies that were hundreds of years before Jesus that also said he will come in on the 483rd year after the announcement to rebuild Jerusalem that you read about in the book of Nehemiah, Messiah will enter. Jesus arrives on a specific day to fulfill history. Palm Sunday, the day they're waving, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means... Save now. Jesus arrives this final week of his life. It was a day of celebration. Have you ever had a day of celebration where things are just going great and it's an awesome day and, and, and you're waving, you're excited, you're, you're flying, they're waving their hands, celebrate. It would be the modern equivalent to E-A-G. I mean, they're all fired up. They're so pumped. There's Jesus. He's going to save us from the Romans. It's a day of celebration. Yet scripture tells me when he comes into Jerusalem, he stops stonking and he cries. What's he crying for? It's a day of celebration. He must be thinking about tomorrow. Monday. Monday. You ever wake up a little cranky on Monday? Jesus seems a little bit off this Monday. For he goes into town and he spots a fig tree. And as he's going toward it, he goes to take fruit off of the fig tree and it doesn't have fruit. He doesn't move on to another tree. Instead, he stops and he says, may no one eat fruit from you again and curses the fig tree. What? Yeah, that's the disciples' reaction too. They're like, just curse the fig tree. And he moves right on behind it, beside it. As he gets into the temple courts, he spots money changers selling goods in the house of the Lord. As he walks in, he spots it, and he takes the tables and he starts turning them over, clearing things off, and he yells, my house will be called a house of prayer. You see, sometimes when Jesus is spoken of in worldly terms, they say, Jesus just loves everybody. But there is a Jesus you can't ignore. There is a Jesus that confronts things that are wrong. 
And he did this this day. Can I ask you a question? Do you think that was the first day the money changers were in there? Mm -mm. He's walked by them before. He's been bothered by this before, but he didn't do anything about it. But this is his final week. It's interesting. When you're thinking about tomorrow, it actually puts some things into action that you know you need to take care of. It's interesting. Monday is a day of confrontation. Isn't it still interesting today that Monday is often a day where we kind of get started in the week and we get done what we need to get done, or at least build out what we're going to accomplish if we've got one week? What he did is he confronted things on Monday. But why hadn't he before? Is it possible that he's thinking about tomorrow? What happened Tuesday? Can you remember? They wake up. They're most likely staying at Mary and Martha's outside of Beth Page and Bethany. And they start walking into town. And Peter notices the fig tree. And he says, Rabbi, look, the tree you cursed is completely withered. Jesus turns to him and says, have faith in God, Peter. Even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Jesus has a lesson this day. In fact, it seems like he's going to do a lot of instructing this day because he gets into the temple courts and somebody challenges him and says, hey, teacher, by what authority are you doing these things? The Sadducees and Pharisees have him surrounded. The public people are watching. And Jesus, the great apologist, turns and says, I'll ask you a question. John the Baptist's baptism, did that come from heaven? <sighs> you say, what, what, what? Well, the Pharisees know. It's like they probably gathered up in a huddle like family feud. All right, all right, what are we going to say? All right, all right. If we say it's from heaven, Jesus is going to say, well, then why didn't you believe in John the Baptist? Oh, true, 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 true. Well, if we say it wasn't from heaven, these people are all going to kill us because they think John the Baptist is it. True, true. Okay, we need to come up with something politically correct. All right, here we go. Jesus. We don't know. <laughs> That's literally what they said. And Jesus says, neither will I tell you on whose authority I do these things. What's going on? He's instructing. He wants to make sure there's instructing. He heads up to the top of the Mount of Olivet and he begins to speak all night. He's teaching all night. Any teachers in here where you've taught all day and you're exhausted, you've been emptying yourself for other people, instructing them as much as you can. You want them to get as much as you can out of all you have to offer. And he gets done the Olivet Discourse where he tells him about the future. He tells him they'll be hated for his name's sake. He tells him of what's coming. But then he turns to his disciples after this exhaustive day of teaching. And he says, hey guys, in two days the Passover is coming. And he continues to say, and the Son of Man will be delivered over and crucified. Jesus was going through Tuesday knowing what's coming tomorrow. It's Wednesday. Hump day. And we have nothing. Nothing. We have no report. There's not, not, none of the disciples or anything about him. None of going, what, what did he do? Did he just kind of recluse a little bit? Did he spend the day with his guys? Did he say, I don't want anybody to write anything about today? We don't have anything. So I'm wondering if Wednesday is just simply a day of preparation. See, when you know you're about to handle or have to go through an incredibly difficult day, there's an aspect where you want to prepare for it. 
Ask my children what it's like being raised in a preacher's house and how much he wants to go out on Saturday night. Not that often. Because you're preparing for tomorrow. I wonder if that's one of the reasons Jesus said, I got to talk to these guys because it's going down. It's really starting to go down tomorrow. Oh, Thursday. Thursday. Many of you know what happens on Thursday. Thursday is a very hard day. Jesus tells his disciples, I want you to go get bread. I want you to go get some wine. We're going to have communion. We're going to celebrate the Passover. We're going to have the Lord's Supper is what we know it as. But this dinner is different. Something's off. Jesus is behaving differently. He's telling them things that he's never really said before. He's saying things like, all of you are going to fall away because of me this night. What? One of you is going to betray me. Judas says, is it I? Do what you have to do. Judas gets up and walks off out of dinner. He turns to Peter who says, I will never fall away, Jesus. Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. What? What's going on here? We were trying to have a nice dinner and Jesus is telling us we're all gonna fall away. Dinner ends, they go up to the garden of Gethsemane. He did this often. You see his humanity and his divinity. He always took time for prayer. And isn't it interesting that scripture says he went to the garden of Gethsemane and you'll hear a line like this, as was his custom. If Jesus felt the need to pray every day, how on earth do we think we can get away with a day? And he goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he's so troubled. He's so troubled. He gets down, he tells his guys, you stay here. You stay here. He goes, he gets down, and he starts crying and shaking. His body is under so much stress. I think it's because he knows what's coming tomorrow. He starts crying. It, it says blood started to come from his eyes. He was so full of stress. Have you ever had your body reacting from stress you're under? He's interrupted. The Roman cohort, some 400 men. You really needed 400 people, Judas? They come up the hill. They knew where he was. He was at the Garden of Gethsemane, and they arrest him. Judas walks up to him, and Jesus says, friend, do what you came to do. And he's arrested and taken before the religious leaders. Thursday was a day. Anybody ever had a day like this? It was a day of rejection. Can you associate with Jesus' life ever? Do you know what it's like to have a day of confrontation where you gotta deal with stuff? Do you know what it's like to have a day of instruction where you're pouring yourself out? Do you know what it's like to have a day where you're just preparing and preparing and preparing for something? Do you know what it's like to have a day of rejection where it feels like everybody turns on you? Jesus has these days. Yeah, and I should just quit and give up on life, right? I should just go hide or just go do something. No, no, no. Tomorrow, Jesus doesn't get to go to bed this night because these guys keep him up all night. They pull him in front of the Sanhedrin. They pull him in front of the high priest. They pull him in front of all these leaders and they begin to question him. And they say things like, are you the king of the Jews? He's up all night. They're questioning him. They're mocking him before 9 a.m. in the morning. They've slammed a crown of thorns on his head with thorns, kids, about that long, those thorns in the Mediterranean. Three, four inches, bang, bleeding down his face. They begin to flog him, which is another title for whip him. 
So now his back is completely exposed. He's bleeding. He's in incredible agony. They put a bandana around his eyes. They smack him in the face and they say, hey, prophesy. Who hit you, mighty prophet? They spit on him. They shove him. They hurt him. It's not even 9 a.m. They tell him to take his cross. And so he's got to slam this awful wood beam on his back that's exposed probably to his spine at this point. And he has to take it up Galgotha's hill as they chant and cheer, not Hosanna anymore, but things like, he saved others, he can't save himself. And they nail him to a cross. From noon o'clock, from noon to 3 p.m., the sky is dark, scripture says. How creepy would that be? His final words on the cross are, it is finished. And he breathes his last. There's an earthquake in the city. Some of the graves are opened and people walk around. Everybody forgets that part of the account. Weird. The veil in the temple is not ripped from the ground up like some human did it. It was ripped from the top down. That veil represented the people not being able to enter into God's presence, into the Holy of Holies. And now it's ripped from the top down as almost if to say anybody can enter in. The fig tree is withered outside as if to say God is done with that Old Testament way. He has a New Testament. He has new blood in his covenant that he is establishing. Jesus is changing everything. If you ever wonder why the God of the Old Testament seems so much our heart and wrath and, and the New Testament, there's so much grace. It's because Jesus took all of that sin on him on the cross. It was as if he said to his father, hit me, and he did. The theological word is propitiation. He paid the wrath for all of our sin. Friday was a day of affliction. But he died. For the joy set before him, because he knew what was coming tomorrow. Saturday. How quiet must have been? Disillusion is winning the day on Saturday. The, the, the soldiers are told to get in front of the tomb, lock it up, roll a stone away, go make it as secure as you can. Roman soldiers guarding this, not soldiers that women could take over that came there early in the morning. Not soldiers that the disciples could sneak in and steal it. Roman soldiers are guarding this tomb. Don't let anybody get near this thing. It was a day where the doubters came out. Disillusion is in the air. Because he's dead. And dead people, I mean, based on my experience, stay dead, right? And, and it's kind of odd to think that someone would die and then live again. It's kind of odd. Can we say it? No, Chris, it's Easter. Don't say that. Jesus is alive. <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of, I mean, that's not really how things go, right? I mean, are we allowed to say this in church? I mean, this is kind of a strange story. I mean, maybe you're here today, you know, like mom wanted us all together. So I like came, you know, but it's like religious stuff. 
Or, or maybe you're here today and you're like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus rose again. I mean, it's a, I feel bad for these people believing this stuff, but okay, we'll get our family picture. But I got stuff to do tomorrow. So we did our Easter thing. We're good, right? But, 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 but what, if, what if this stuff is true? Huh? Well, I mean, I want to believe it. In fact, there was a time... There was a time where I was like really into it. I was like doing the Jesus thing, but you know, with all the stuff going on and stuff, it's kind of it's hard. See, see, sometimes Saturday is where so many people get stuck in disillusion and they come in here and Christians are in here and believers are in here going, Hosanna, save now. And we're singing about the blood and people are like, people is in there, they sing about blood all the time. They love the blood. It's exactly that point that Carl Kirby says, the reader, founder of Hope. He says, sometimes the problem is, one of the main problems is today, so many Christians do not have an accurate view of how they're seen, nor have they taken the time to back up what they believe. And so when someone says, can you really believe that? They go, well, yeah, and that's all you got. Shouldn't we have a little bit more like evidence and backing than maybe even just, I don't know, the Bible you might say? See, disillusion makes us start to question everything and we live in a world that's definitely questioning that. So, so what do I do with this? I'll tell you what I like to do. I do like some research, I do like some study, and I've kind of developed my own, and, and you can come up with your own, but, but in, in, in the Christian world, it's called apologetics, or being able to defend what you believe. And so what I have is my, my resurrection files here a little bit today, and I don't have all my sources here, but I have a lot of my things, and it kind of covers four, four, four key areas, I think, when you're talking about the resurrection. I mean, hey, Saturday, graves rolled in, right? Well, here's the four areas in my resurrection files. One, do we have historical support? I mean, do we just have the Bible or is there writings outside of scripture that verify this from the first or second century? Do we have anything written during that time period that can authenticate this history? Second, is there sufficient evidence? I mean, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there, right? I mean, he was stolen. It was a swoon theory. I think there was the hallucination theory that the disciples were just hallucinating this. I mean, has anybody done the research and gotten some evidence about whether it's sufficient or not? And then the third category is, is it credible? I mean, I mean, can I trust that book? I mean, it's like 2000, thousands, right? Like, so can I trust it? I mean, I don't know if I trust it. I, it. It seems to have some like things in there that might not even fit into my worldview right now. And then finally, if Jesus died and rose again, you would think that would have a transformative effect on culture, right? I mean, I would think that would change things. So, so I get out of my files sometimes and I like to look at through these things. One, is there historical support? Well, Doug Powell, one of my favorite authors in the areas of apologetics, he wrote the book, The Jesus Files. He, he offers minimal facts. Whenever you're studying history, you have to have minimal facts and be able to prove them. Here's three that I'm gonna just point out today. It's a minimal fact that Jesus died by crucifixion. It's a minimal fact that the tomb was found empty. And it's a minimal fact that there were followers who saw Jesus. Do we have any accounts outside the Bible that verify that in history? Well, one is Lucian. He's a second century historian. Did Jesus die by crucifixion? He writes this in his, in his book. Jesus was worshiped by Christians, introduced new teachings, and was crucified for them. 
So, so yes, we do have sources outside of scripture that say, yes, this Jesus guy was crucified. Second, second, was the tomb found empty? Talada writes about this in his biography of Jesus, another early century writer. He writes, on the first day of the week, his bold followers came to Queen Helene with the report that he who was slain was truly the Messiah and that he was not in his grave. There it is. We have a report outside of scripture that the tomb was found empty. Well, what about whether his followers saw Jesus? Oh, you may have heard of Flavius Josephus. He was a first century Roman historian. He wrote, and it's interesting to hear somebody write about Jesus outside of scripture. He writes this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day. So we can see even just with those minimal facts that yes, there is historical support that Jesus died and rose again. But, but is there sufficient evidence? Well, you know what's interesting? A lot of our evidence that comes in studying out the history of Jesus' death and resurrection comes from people who didn't believe in the Bible and wanted to prove it wrong and ended up seeing the truth in it. One specific story is a gentleman who was a columnist for the, an, excuse me, an editor for the Chicago Tribune. His name was Lee Strobel, and he went through the evidence that led through Jesus' life. And he began to give defenses for Scripture's accuracy. It's like, you can't believe the swoon theory, then you have to believe that Romans didn't know how to crucify people. You can't believe the hallucination theory because the disciples didn't even believe it was him. You can't believe the theft theory because the Jews or the Romans could have just unveiled the body at some point and debunked the whole thing. We get these arguments from men like Lee Strobel who writes this, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I had as an atheist. Indeed, following him would inevitably bring divine demotions in the eyes of the world. I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead that meant following him was the most rational and logical step I could take. He writes a book with all his evidence called A Case for Christ as well as A Case for Easter you can find. I would encourage you to check it out if you have questions about these things. You know, his name is Sir Lionel Luku. He's known as the most successful lawyer in history. He won 245 straight cases, which is a Guinness World Record. He chose to study the evidence for the resurrection and said this, I say unequivocally, the evidence for resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. There is sufficient evidence out there. But what about internal credibility? I mean, we're in a time period where people are like, can you trust that Bible? How do you trust any historical book? You trust it by how many manuscripts are found and have they brought congruence to give you the copy you just bought at Barnes and Noble. You got it from manuscripts. I brought up Josephus. You know there's 55 manuscripts for Josephus? I could lay out 55 manuscripts and we could compare all the 55 and what scholars do as they scribe it down to one copy, they take it and they look for discrepancies and they get the right exact one that agrees with the 55. 55 copies for Josephus. You know one of the other ones that's even bigger than that? Homer's writings. The Iliad, 
there's over a thousand manuscripts for Homer's Iliad. Do you know how many manuscripts there are for the New Testament? Here's a slide. 23,966. Yet we live in a world that goes, I don't know if you can trust that. The only way we base historical writings is manuscripts. And the scriptures are full of them. Well, what about that Old Testament? There's some weird stories in there too. You know, in 1948, in the caves of Qumran, they found what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They call it the greatest archeological discovery for the lovers of the Bible. And in those caves, they found what's called the Isaiah Scroll. That scroll dates back hundreds of years before Jesus lived and walked the earth. The document that is from a hand copy of an autograph, which is your first copy written from Isaiah. It's a hand copy, so it dates way before Jesus. And in that cave, they found these writings in Isaiah. He was born for our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We have internal credibility. But, but, but if we have this great internal credibility, do we have transformation? I mean, if that were to happen, you would think, Jesus, it would have a transforming effect. But, but look at this map. Simon Peter, after the resurrection, was crucified. John, exiled. Philip, stoned. Judas, son of James, beaten. Bartholomew, beheaded. Thomas, tortured. Simon, crucified. Matthew, beheaded. James, stoned and beaten. James, the other James, beheaded. Andrew, crucified. Would you die if you hid the body? Would you be martyred and killed if it was a fake? It's now 2022. We get that date from the year of our Lord. You sign your checks, 2022, because of Jesus. And in 2022, I love this quote. For over 2,000 years, people have held that Jesus returned to life after three days. Even now in the age of science, more than 2 billion people worship Jesus as the living God. Some are scientists, some are scholars. Some are rich, others are poor. Some reflected deeply on the challenges to Christianity before casting their lot with Jesus. Others believe without investigating. With one voice, this diverse throng testifies that Jesus is alive today. We have historical support. We have sufficient evidence. We have internal credibility. We have transformative effect on people's lives. And it's Sunday. It's the final week of Jesus. And it's Sunday. What happens, scripture tells me. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. There's a group of ladies and they're walking towards the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about what this did, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek a moving among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you? The resurrection is the biggest I told you so in the world. I told you. I told you I'd do this. And these women are moving towards the tomb. And they get to witness it first. They go back and report it to the disciples and they even don't believe them. Peter goes and sees it for himself. Isn't it so awesome on the day of Jesus' resurrection, they have people coming towards the tomb just hoping it's true. But do you know there's an account 
of two guys walking away. Yeah, for every believer, it seems there's also a doubter. And these guys are walking away from Jerusalem. It's called the road to Emmaus. Listen to what happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing this together, Jesus himself drew near and went to them. What? But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, whether divine or whether their doubt prevented them from seeing it's him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood looking sad. One of them named Cleopas, he answered him and said, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Jesus shows up, follows them. They're walking away from the city seven miles. They're in Quaker town now, they left first. And Jesus goes after them. And they're talking, I can't believe what happened. And he says, hey guys, hey guys, what are you talking about? And they go, we're talking about the things that have happened. And Jesus, I love this. I want to meet the resurrected Jesus so bad. He says this, what things? Like Jesus, he was a great prophet. And then he died and we were hoping he would save us from the Romans. And Jesus goes, all foolish ones. Slow of heart. I told you he would suffer and rise again. Sunday is resurrection day. And Jesus is asking, which way are you walking? Are you walking towards the tomb in faith? Or are you walking away in doubt? For the one walking towards him going, I know you're real Jesus. I know you've changed my life. I know you're my risen savior. He says to her, Mary, and she recognized him when he said her name. But to the doubters, seven miles from Jerusalem, and if you're out here today and you're going, Chris, I wanna believe, I wanna believe, isn't it cool to know we have a resurrection of story of Jesus coming for him? Hey guys, what are you talking about? We're just talking about like this whole Jesus thing and we're trying to get our hands around it. Really? And he shows them the scripture. You know what they say? Did our hearts not burn as he walked and talked with us? Which way are you walking? Because that will dictate how you handle tomorrow. For if Jesus is alive, there's nothing to worry about tomorrow. If Jesus is alive, tomorrow you can go ahead and worry about yourself. If Jesus is alive, I can take care of today because he's alive. You see, if you're the author of the story, you wrote the beginning and the end. You know how it's going to finish. My favorite sports teams, when I record them, if they lose, I don't watch it. If they win, I go back and watch it. And sometimes we'll even be losing in the third quarter, but that's all right. We're coming back because I know how it ends. Jesus died on the cross and rose again and has victory over death so that you, child of God, don't have to fear tomorrow. Amen? So do not worry about tomorrow. Do not fret the what ifs. You know what you should do instead? Plan out your even ifs. Even if this happens tomorrow, I'm not gonna worry about it. 
But what if that happens tomorrow? Even if that happens tomorrow, I'm not gonna worry about it. Because you know what? Tomorrow will worry about itself. Do not fabricate, what will I do? What will I do? What will I do? Instead, trust who you will trust. Do not fabricate what you will do. Focus all your energy on who you will trust because he's going with you into the future. He's gonna be right by your side. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. Today has enough trouble of its own. Do not fear the unknown things. Hey, today, just do the next right thing. And in doing so, you can handle, not on your own strength, but on his tomorrow. And because he lives, don't fret. Because he lives, don't fabricate. Because he lives, don't fear. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on that Roman cross. Scripture tells us without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness. But it can't be anybody's blood. It's got to be perfect blood. It's got to be blood of the God-man. And you love the world so much you sent your son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You don't need files, Lord. You don't need backup. You gave us your truth. It can be incredibly trusted. It's in fact the only thing that can be trusted in a world that is twisting everything. And that truth says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Lord, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if there's anyone in here today, this Easter, who is tired of walking on the road that leads away from the tomb, I pray you hunt them down. Come right up to their seat and say, today's the day. What are you talking about? talking about everything going on all these things what things the things I'm afraid of the things I'm disappointed in the things that bother me don't be slow of heart I'm alive and you can live too if you believe in him if there's anyone in here today I pray they would even pray even today Lord be my savior I'm tired of walking on the road alone. I surrender my life to you. The Lord knows your heart. The Lord knows those hearts that are slow and even those hearts that are fired up about what you're doing. Thank you, Lord, for this Resurrection Sunday. And because you live, I can face tomorrow.